This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda, our podcast, Spirit Matters, spiritmatterstalk.com, where we are found. And our guest today uh, is Paul Chafee. He is the publisher and editor of the Interfaith Observer, a monthly internet magazine uh, promoting healthy interfaith culture, which began in September 2011. Uh, he was the founding executive director of Interfaith Center at the Presidio, uh, where he served for 17 years. Uh, he has done tremendous work in this area, and we are very happy, Paul, you took the time to come on with us today. Hey, it's good to be with you. Thank you. Paul, this is Phil. Let's, yeah. um, let's begin by uh, giving our listeners a sense of who you are and how you came to uh your leadership position in the interfaith world. You started out, as I recall, as an ordained uh, minister. Maybe you can give us some of your background. Uh, good, thank you. Um, maybe I should say, too, at the front end, that, um, you know, it's sort of the basic assumption that I work with every day, uh, and it really informs, I think, everything I do in the interfaith world, and that is that, uh, that humankind, our family, uh, badly needs a healthy, constructive uh, interfaith culture, and that that notion resonates in all sorts of different ways. Uh, but that's certainly the life I'm trying to to lead. Uh, my my ministry, in a sense, began by going to seminary. But actually, the reason I went to seminary was that I was so confused. Um, my parents were missionaries in Asia for 25 years. So uh, I was a toddler in China and then grew up in Bangkok and went to a missionary high school in North India, all of which <laughs> makes for a rich experience and, and a very confusing growing up, uh, watching Buddhists and Hindus and as well as the Christian missionaries that uh, I knew through my folks. Uh, the, the great good thing that came along with that background was my dad, uh, who, for a missionary, he, he didn't fit many of your uh, preconceptions. He wasn't a fiery rhetorical guy. He's one of the gentlest souls I've I've known. Um, when you know, when I was maybe ten or eleven, I went to confirmation class uh, at the International Church in Bangkok, and it's a great course for a whole year. Uh, it was uh, I still remember the teacher well, Ray Downs. Anyway, at the end of the end of the year, the pastor joined us one day and said, "Now y'all be joining the church, right?" And I was thunderstruck. I mean, nobody ever told me uh -huh. that, and I, I went to my dad, you know, really upset. And he said, "Oh no, 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 you don't need to join the church." He he bought me a book on uh, world. Well, I said, you know, I don't. I'm just beginning to know what you believe, and I haven't a clue about what the Buddhists around us believe. And all of a sudden, you want me to join. He says, no. Uh, he went out and got me a book on, on world religions, another one on the different kinds of Christian, and uh, really gave me permission to try to work it out myself uh, rather than simply pick up what, what uh, his culture was. And uh, it took a long time to do that. I went off and became you know, a college English teacher for some years um, and then finally decided the only way I'd get my head you know, straight would be to go to seminary. I tried reading religion on my own, and it hadn't gotten me much of anywhere. So uh, I did, and I ran into a wonderful African-American mystic uh, pioneer, interfaith pioneer, 
uh, Howard Thurman, uh, who wrote mostly devotionally, but who is being taken very, very seriously in theological circles now, particularly among uh, African-American theologians. Um, at the same time, I, I uh, did a doctoral seminar in, um, in Alfred North Whitehead, who gave us process thinking, uh, which has influenced almost everything about our lives today. But in any case, I, I finally figured out after a year's study that Whitehead's notions or assumptions and Howard Thurman's assumptions, uh, like the assumption that all of life is interconnected, that between you and me and between myself and the tree outside the window, that there are relationships that were connected. That kind of a um, that kind of an insight. I mean, we could talk all year about process thinking and theology and, mm-hmm. and assumptions, but it for me it gave me an open door to talk to other people and try to articulate a faith for myself that didn't make other people wrong. Right. And that's what I was really right. interested in, and my work has sort of grown out of that ever since. Mm-hmm. Paul, let me ask you. Uh, uh, I, I I grew up Catholic, and uh, my folks were similar to your dad in that uh, we were always taught, my brother and I, that, uh, you know, we, we, we happen to be Catholic, but all the religions are basically the same. There's good and bad in each, and they're all pointing towards the same truth. So it was always inter- easy for me to uh, embrace the concept of interfaith. Uh, but what right. about that? But, but I also remember telling my dad, you know, you send me to these uh, catechism, these religious classes, and they don't think like you. This is, the, the, their feeling is, it's our way or the highway. Other people might be nice, but our job is to make them like us, to convert them. Now that you've been in interfaith for many years and uh, you're still working in this area, how do you deal with those religious folks who still have that fundamentalist or you know, approach or that approach where it's our way or the highway, we have the truth, everybody is out of uh, sync with us? Uh, how do they react to what you're doing? Well, well, it's interesting because you're, you you made a couple of assumptions that I would I would quibble with. Okay, uh, we're not all the same. The religions are very different, and they have different uh, beliefs and different ceremonies, different symbols, different stories. And to be sure, there are underlying things that we share. And indeed, many people make the point that what we share is much more important than what where we differ. But one of the things we've discovered in the interfaith movement is that we can honor each other's differences and embrace them without trying to change who we are, except uh, the, the kind of change that builds relationship. We can build strong relationships and learn from each other without having to say you're right or, or I'm right. In fact, a lot of the Christian, progressive Christians that I, I talk to say that, you know, it's really the quality of the experience of your not life, not what you believe. And uh, that's very liberating for anyone who wants to get into this kind of work. But what do you do with the fundamentalist? I, you know, there's been a, a sea change in this. Uh, the Catholics, until a couple of decades ago, were, you know, had, had that... Uh, the theology that that uh, without the church, no, 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 you know, no path to God but through uh, our our catechism, and um, very few Catholics. Well, I, I'm I'm sure there are Catholics who still think that, but Pope Francis certainly doesn't. And uh, you can turn to every tradition and find a minority 
uh, a persistent minority, a thorn in the flesh that requires the my way or the highway thinking that you you mm-hmm. talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's it's all I think of it almost like a disease. Uh, William Blake called it single vision, uh, the inability to see uh, from more than one point of view. Um, and, you know, there's, there are lots of ways to deal with fundamentalists. And, and one of the best that I've discovered is, is being friendly with them. Uh, <laughs> lots of times, uh, interfaith people will say, oh, you know, we invite the fundamentalists, but they just won't come. And even if they did, they, they don't want to do anything but change your mind. Um, I was disabused of that notion when I got to know a uh, a person who's in the pagan movement, Covenant of the Goddess, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he was uh, he was asked by his tradition, Covenant of the Goddess, to become their interface rep back in the eighties, and and he saw a conference in Berkeley uh, that was sponsored by the Spiritual Counterfeits Project, which is a fundamentalist, intellectual fundamentalist uh, Christian think tank. Uh, they still are around, as a matter of fact. The, anyway, Don saw that they were doing a conference on the occult. And he knows a lot about the occult, because he's been in that world all his life. And, and uh, so he said, I'd better go. And he went, and they put on his, on his name tag, Don, C-O-G. And most of the people there probably thought that meant, you know, Church of God, Pentecostal tradition. Uh-huh. <laughs> it meant something <laughs> of the goddess. So he, he sat there and listened for two or three days to this stuff. And then there's a, a final keynote got up and said, you know, the, the pagans, the witches are trying to uh, seduce your children. They believe in unicorns. They have these sub-rosa lives and dungeons and mm-hmm. this, that, and the other. They're really trying to steal your, your kids' souls. Well, finally, then in the Q&A, Don got up and he said, you know, I'm a witch. We have a common. We don't do any of that. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, that's not who we are. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not into black magic. You know, we're not trying to hurt anybody. And, uh, you know, at the next break, people sort of moved away from him. <laughs> but uh, several of the leaders came up to him and said, you know, thanks for coming. Mm-hmm. And thanks for not getting upset and just telling us your, your piece. Why don't we have lunch? And they did, and that, that was 25 years ago, 30 years ago almost, and uh, they've formed friendships. They will now <laughs> send their books, I mean, they don't agree about anything but much, but uh, they will send their publications to each other ahead of time to make sure that they're quoting correctly, that they're not misconstruing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the first lesson is that you've got you to gotta be friendly with those folks, and when they get, when they get pushy... You know, you, you uh, I don't know, uh, you, you, you have to c- continue in dialogue. Right. I usually, I, I sometimes go to an ancient Jain. The Jain religion is a, one of the earliest religions that emerged out of India, and they are the ones who gave us Ahimsa, which Gandhi and Martin Luther King propounded, mm-hmm. radical nonviolence, Ahimsa. Anyway, people don't usually know that, that Anakanta Veda is another one of the major principles of the Jains. Anakanta Veda is, a, is the idea that it's impossible to view reality from just one point of view. 
only way you can get in touch with what's real in the world is to get multiple points of view. And, and that's a, you know, they talk about the, the story they use is the, the uh, six blind men and the elephant. Yeah. And one thinks the elephant's a rope and one thinks it's a tree and, you know, so on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you, you try to keep the dialogue open and friendly. If you demonize them, like they demonize us, we don't mm-hmm. get anywhere. Paul, so you have to open the conversation. This uh, this uh, raises a question that um, you've addressed. Well, not you, but the, uh, your your publication, the Interfaith Observer, has addressed, and it's one that, in many parts of the world, is a very delicate issue and a very troublesome one. <laughs> and that is uh, proselytizing and mm-hmm. and um, coercive uh, conversion attempts. Uh, and you come from a missionary family, which mm-hmm. sounds like the kind of missionaries who would be welcomed in, in developing countries and, and uh, non-Christian countries. But there are, there are other forms of proselytizing and conversion attempts that have raised a lot of uh, difficulties mm-hmm. in the world. What have your uh, experiences been and uh, what have you observed in the sort of global interfaith context? Well, yeah, my parents, as I said, were general people. My mother did music. My dad did teaching. Um, but the kind of thing you're talking about is, is really serious. It's a huge, complex issue. There are a lot of people around the world that are so ticked off at Christians they can't see straight, and for good reason. I heard about the term rice Christians when I was a kid. We'd been in China. You know, you, you say, yes, I believe in Jesus, and we'll give you a bowl of rice. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's, that that kind of coercive, uh, if you'll only believe in the way I believe, then, then everything's going to start working for you. I think it's evil. I think it's uh, manipulative and uh, does what God would never do to us. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, I think it's a really serious issue as the world gets a lot smaller and as the world gets more violent, as the world gets hotter. Um, this last issue, if you go to the interfaithobserver.org and click on the December issue, uh, this month's issue actually, you'll find that we have five articles on proselytism. Mm-hmm. And um, there's one that sort of argues, you know, the saying you have to leave open the freedom to try to propagate your faith, as long as it's not manipulative or coercive. And they found statistically that that kind of an open attitude is probably less violent than any alternative. If you turn to the places where proselytizing really gets evil, it's it's in a country like Pakistan or Bangladesh uh, or Saudi Arabia, you know, where uh, proselytizing um, is forbidden. And so when it emerges, it often emerges violent, and when it emerges violent, they you know everything gets nasty. Yeah. So I think there's a real argument for openness. Yeah. But I don't think there's any good spiritual argument for coercion, or manipulation, or coming in and disrespecting the other person. Right. What we do in the in the interfaith movement is about respect. Right. The um, we should add for the sake of listeners that we're recording this at the end of December of 2015. And no matter when you hear this, you can go to 
the uh, interface of the Gerber website and look at the back issues yeah, and, and you'll, uh, find, you'll find that. Yeah, it's the interfaithobserver.org, O-R-G. Uh, There's one story there that's particularly attractive uh, by uh, Ruth Broid Sharon, who writes for us every month. Mm -hmm. She's a uh, Jewish interfaith activist, probably the most active interfaith grassroots activist on the planet. And she heard about this messianic, uh, messianic Judaism tradition. Mm -hmm. So she thought, wow, I better go and see. And she went, and she was immediately approached to uh, convert to their version of following Jesus in a Jewish way mm. and how she responded because they came out real heavy with is, her. Is that yeah, uh, also known to as me too. Jews for Jesus? Is that uh, it, it's a group like the Jews for Jesus. Yeah. Very, very close. Paul, Paul, I and uh, what she did was when this guy, you know, towering over her, mm-hmm. you know, told her why he believed in Jesus and why she needed to see the truth of his experience. What she did was she immediately acknowledged his experience. You know, I believe that that healing really happened to you, and I can see how much uh-huh. it moved you and changed you and formed you for what you are. You know what? I've had the same thing in my life. <laughs> my religious experience has really opened me up to, to what's so meaningful. And uh, so they, they all of a sudden were on even ground. And the guy didn't feel put down, and he forgave her sort of for not immediately jumping on his bandwagon and then someone another couple came up they were a coffee hour and uh and ruth excused herself mm. and and headed out but uh very i mean she went down sat in the front row by herself you know uh, at this service and uh then realized that they were using all the jewish worship forms uh to propagate jesus is the only way and our way to jesus is the only way well jesus used those forms too <laughs> right, right. Hey, Paul, I wanted to ask you, uh, you're involved in interfaith work, uh, and as I understand it, and it's going to be wrong, uh, that is like bringing uh, the different religions together and uh, seeing how they can uh, benefit from that coming together and uh, looking more towards their similarities than their differences. How, how do uh, folks, and there are many now, that consider themselves spiritual but not religious and maybe don't want any uh, type of connection with a uh, formal religion uh, uh, how do those people fit in to the work you're doing and to the organization, uh, uh, organizations of interfaith? Well, we've had at least half a dozen articles about the uh, spiritual but not religious mm-hmm. community. And I think as a publication, we've treated it with much, much more respect than it first got in the traditional theological circles. It was first dissed as a uh, spiritually shallow you know, consumer-oriented, mm-hmm. uh, selfish, <laughs> spiritual attitude. And, and that kind of nonsense has pretty much gone away. I'm happy to say in the last 24 months, mm-hmm. I haven't seen anything like that recently. Uh, <clears throat> the interfaith movement, it's funny. You know, 25 years ago, if I asked for a telephone operator for an interfaith this side or the other, she assumed I was saying interfaith. Uh-huh. Because we're in Northern California, and she right. was sure I was talking computer talk. Right. Um, now, interfaith is in the paper every day, and too often it's a matter of violence. But uh, you know, in the last two weeks, I picked up thirty articles. I quit after that. I've seen more since about interfaith groups at the grassroots level across this country who who've uh, you know acted in solidarity with Muslim brothers and sisters gone to the mosques, 
held peace vigils and, and so on and so forth. So um, there's there's a kind of um, inclusiveness that's growing on us. We're moving slowly in some arenas from interreligious to um, uh, to really becoming more of one community, honoring our differences, but saying, you know, there are certain things that are not only common that we share, but that we need to, we need to uh, move on. We get to that point, the, the humanists and the atheists and the spiritual but not religious people show up on the horizon. When we had a service in San Francisco three days after 9-11 with 400 clergy, processing into a hall with 6,000 people and had a four and a half hour memorial service. We left afterwards and there was a group off in the corner of the parking lot with big banners holding up signs, really angry signs. And Rita Semmel, the sort of godmother of interfaith in San Francisco, went over and said, what's the problem? And they said, you didn't invite us. And she said, what? She said, we're the humanists. You think we don't care? Mm-hmm. Sure, we care. But why don't? And Rita said, "Well, we didn't have your address. That's why we didn't." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they welcomed them in. And I, you know, we had we did the whole issue of Teal on welcoming in humanists, atheists, and and uh, and spiritual but not religious people when they want to come. And I think when they want to come is when people of faith and practice finally decide they need to start being activists in the world. The whole thing about climate, for instance, has been an issue which every religious tradition that I know of has said amen to. We need to work together on this. Mm-hmm. And when that kind of coordination and, and collaboration really uh, starts to take off, the people who don't go to church, for one reason or another, are going to say, well, we think that's a good idea too. Can we sit at the table? Mm-hmm. And the answer is overwhelmingly yes. Yeah. They're one, one kind of community that has recently become part of the interfaith table. And I would also turn to scientists, especially scientists with mystic propensities, which there are quite a few of. Uh, I'd also include women. Uh, women leadership has taken off for the last five, ten years in ways that just have blown our minds. Uh, they're doing extraordinary work right now. And uh, young adults. Yeah. The UN passed a whole initiative last week about youth, peace, and security in the world. So we need to get the kids involved. And that's happening at so many different levels. The most successful interfaith organization in some ways in this country is uh, the Interfaith Youth Corps. Mm-hmm. Big staff. All sorts of activity on hundreds of campuses across the country. So um, the table's getting much larger, and we're trying to be more inclusive. And I think to the degree that people realize that we live in crisis times, they're willing to let let it go those those differences that used to scare them, and sit down at the table and start working on strategy. You know, uh, I was going to ask you what uh, changes you've observed in the interfaith world over time, but I think you've already answered that because my my own observation is that it has gotten gradually uh, deeper and uh, broader, and that it's more inclusive. And you and I were both at the recent uh, Parliament of World Religions in Indeed. Salt Lake City, and my observation there, as compared to the previous one I went to, was uh, exactly that. It was more inclusive. Um, what were your observations and uh, about the Parliament and its um, uh, 
upside, its uh, rooms for improvement, and so forth as, as that global interfaith world moves forward. Well, the 1893 Parliament in Chicago really is usually marked as the historic beginning of the interfaith movement. And we might say by interfaith we mean more pluralist than interreligious. We live in interreligious worlds altogether now. My dentist is a Hindu, my bus driver is a Sikh, you know, I mean, we are interreligious in this culture now. We, We need to learn about the pluralism part, which is the... That's something that's that is coming. That's that's slowly coming as we see the the crisis issues emerge, and as people want to work together to to make the place work. Uh, Paul, I wanted to ask you: uh, the current pope, uh, he's made a big splash among people that are progressive in Catholicism and uh, probably other religions as well. How has he been, and what do you think his attitude toward his uh, toward interfaith dialogue is? I missed uh, part of your, your okay, question. I'll, I'll How has... The current Pope, Pope Francis. Well, you know, the current Pope is, is our kind of Pope. I mean, in terms <laughs> of interfaith uh, persuasions, he's, he's stepped out. One of the first things he did in imitating uh, St. Francis was to set up dialogue with Muslims. Um, and uh, at every step of the way, he's visited mosques in the, in the Central African Republic, which is a war zone right now, um, and uh, uh, he's done a, a great deal to really take us down that uh, down the path of openness to that. Of course, he's received a lot of resistance for it, too, but uh, even before, as a cardinal in Argentina, he was known to be a very interfaith-friendly kind of a, kind of a thinker and doer, and, um, uh, you know, we just praise God to have him doing what he's doing, and then, of course, the work that he's done on the, on, on the creative, you know, Laudatum see his, his encyclical, is something that uh, everybody, the Muslims, the Buddhists, the Hindus, and Christians of every kind have, have said hallelujah. Uh, he's hitting it spot on. So that's been one of the, one of the really great developments. Um, Paul? When um, often, in, uh, when you read about interfaith uh, events or activities, you see the word, and in, in the mass media as well, you see the word tolerance a lot. And uh, there was a time when the word tolerance uh, seemed to be uh, an ideal, uh, as a, certainly a lot better than intolerance and and uh, demonizing uh, the the religious other um, but it also for many people the word tolerance um, has a, a kind of a negative connotation in that you know you just tolerate something whereas in in a really pluralistic uh, culture uh, terms like respect terms like uh, mutual um, learning from one another and so forth are far um, more uh, preferable to the word tolerance. How, oh, absolutely. How absolutely. have you seen that evolve? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, tolerance is something that keeps civic life safe, right? <laughs> you know, you, you, you don't mess with me, I don't mess with you, and what you do behind your door is fine and you, as long as you don't mess with us. Uh, tolerance is... Uh, I'm sure, you know, a high, high value 
for the three quarters of the of the of humankind that currently live with religious oppression. You know, with, with, who've had their religious freedom taken away. Uh, I'm sure Christians in China, you know, wish that there was more tolerance in the part of the Communist Party than they than they receive. But uh, it it doesn't. The word tolerance doesn't come anywhere close to what we've been talking about. I mean, what we've been talking about is engagement. It's uh, welcoming the other, not as a stranger, but as a as a friend to become. Um, and uh, I don't think that the planet will survive with tolerance. It's not enough to tolerate each other. We are in such a mess right now that we need to work together. And I think slow, you know, the one way to raise money uh, almost immediately and quickly is to have a huge crisis, have a tsunami, have an earthquake, have a huge fire. People pull their wa- their wallets out. When when the crisis becomes clear, people get mobilized, and I think that's part of what's spurring the interfaith movement. I think that's you know the the um, one of the major themes at the uh, at the parliament in Salt Lake was that you know talk is not enough. We've got to act, and there were a number of resolutions that came out of there. There are a lot of planning groups that came out of there, and I'm I'm thinking that's one of the most exciting things mm-hmm. about about the, the new parliament, the, the uh, parliament today. Um, institutionally, I, I didn't really finish that question you had earlier, Phil. Institutionally, it's very, very hard to um, run a 10,000-person event every five years. I think that may be one of the reasons why they decided to have a parliament somewhere every two years. Uh, at least you can get some momentum going. You might not draw quite as many people as came to Salt Lake. That was a record. I think they had 9,800 people uh, registered, and there were like 800 workshops. Um, it just it was astounding, uh, a little overwhelming. It sort of is interesting because when we all come together, we all leave with our own experiences because there's no way, Phil, that I was able to experience it like you did, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Well, because when you have 800 workshops to choose from, you have to define what your interests are and, and go find that crowd. And, uh, boy, we had lots of opportunities. It, it wasn't easy just reading the, the schedule. With the catalog, yeah. I finally got it on my phone, uh-huh. and so I was able to flip through the, you know, but, you know, weighed three pounds. The <laughs> hey, hey, Paul, I wanted to ask you, and I... Uh, and I, again, I want to uh, thank you for taking the time to come on today. And I have one last question, and then Phil, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, if somebody listening in now is thinking, you know, I, I haven't gone to church in years. I've stayed away because uh, of the narrow-mindedness uh, of the church I went to in the past. Uh, but if I wanted to find a church, if I'm living in Cleveland or Cincinnati or, or uh, Baltimore, and, uh, I want to find a, a, a particular, I want to find a church or congregation that uh, might have this interfaith approach and be open to that. Uh, how would they go about doing that? Is there any recommendation you would make to them? Uh, it's hard to pinpoint. Uh, I should start out by saying that uh, my wife and I quit going to churches two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was because we couldn't find a church in our community in San Francisco that was uh, that cared about interfaith the way we do. Wow. Uh, we are in the process of moving to Santa Rosa, and I've spent some time up, there, up here mm-hmm. this summer and this fall. And we went to a United Church of Christ, uh, you know, service. I'm ordained in the United Church of Christ, so it's sort of a family. It's a very progressive church, but that doesn't mean necessarily that they are 
full of the spirit and warmth or interfaith friendly because churches come in every they're like people a personality for each well we found this church that is full of heart wow where the pastor is not just our ordained united church of christ pastor he's also a, a buddhist sensei who's been qualified by masters to teach meditation mm. And, you know, I think that in the United Church of Christ, you'll find a lot of openness to interfaith. Whether you find interfaith uh, proponents like me, you have to try it out. You should also know that, that the United Methodist Church, that the uh, uh, Lutheran Church, ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, um, the Unitarian tradition, particularly the Unitarian tradition, all are traditions that have been open to interfaith and all have congregations which, uh, you know, affirm membership to those who aren't necessarily Christian, which is a huge step forward. It's, it's a slow movement, but it's, it's a, you find it more and more and more. So you have to look around, you have to find who the progressive voices are, and you have to find out. And one of the ways to do it is to uh, go find the local interfaith council. Back in the late 70s, there were 70 interfaith councils across America. Now there are hundreds, I would wager to say there are thousands of interfaith councils in America. Um, in every town, almost, I mean, if there's a mosque and a Buddhist temple, there's probably a rabbi and a progressive Christian who got together, you know, once a month. Find out who those people are. And then if you're a Christian, go to one of the Christian ones. If you, you grew up uh, Japanese-American and Buddhist, well, they're probably a good Buddhist uh, place that will not only uh, give you a family of friends, but also give you an open door to relating to other traditions. And that's, for me, where the juice is. Mm -hmm. It's when we can really get the dialogue going back and forth and start contributing. So it's not so much our differences that are a problem, but our differences become a source of inspiration and learning. You know, I've learned so much from Muslims about prayer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Paul? But that doesn't mean I'm anywhere close to being a Muslim. It's just that my Muslim have taught me about prayer. Paul, one uh, before we uh, let you go, um, we're now speaking just a, a couple of days before uh, the new year. Yes. What, what are your uh, plans and what are your dreams for interfaith in the in 2016? And um, before you sign off, make sure we the listeners know how they can. Uh, uh, go to the Interfaith Observer website. Good, thank you so much. Um, I did a lot of dreams for uh, you know 2016. For me, the big dream uh, would be that the major interfaith bodies of the world, particularly in the West, because that's where they're strongest, uh, do a better job of um, connecting. Once upon a time, in the last 25 years, there's been a fair amount of competition between interfaith groups. And that's no, no wonder. We live in a culture where winning is everything and being the biggest and the best is the main thing. And, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and so it's very hard not to, you know, try to define your world and, and shut out the rest of them. <laughs> what we're finding now at the institutional level with, the, with the, uh, the bodies that have big staffs and things like that is that they tend to have different constituencies, different programs, different funding sources and uh, different goals or related goals but, but slightly different goals and that being the case uh, they are really when they sit down and really think about that they realize we need to work together we cannot do it alone 
and we're not going to be robbing you of your funders because we go to different people. We do it a different way. So my hope is that there's much more um, relationship. It's already happening. I can tell you it's already happening. There are certain things scheduled for 2016 that augur well in terms of more coordination. Uh, at the local level, at where I go to go to a worship or, or you, um, I'm hoping that that same kind of growth of, of relationship happens, but at the same time that the, we, we each of us start to identify how in our own traditions, and this can be even with atheists who fight just like denominational people fight, to figure out how to deal with our intra-faith struggles. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder for uh, five kinds of Christians to sit down together and break bread happily than it is for a Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, uh, Taoist, Confucian to sit down and break bread happily. Uh, the, the toughest fights are the family fights. Right. And we, you know, we need to figure out how to deal with conflict in our own families. That will teach us how to deal with conflicts across our traditions. And then finally, maybe we can hold hands and, and work on some of the big issues. Uh, Tio, uh, we often call it Tio, the Interfaith Observer, Peren, Tio, Peren. Uh, if you just Google the Interfaith Observer, you'll, you'll go there very quickly. The actual website is the Interfaith Observer, one word, dot org. Um, and uh, we've, we've got oh, I, I can, over 40 issues up there, and most of the issues have a theme, <laughs> and you can, you can download any of, the, any of the back issues. We've had 350 people writing for it, which is uh, another measure of how much concern there is uh, out there in the world. Well, thank you so very much. And again, you could uh, even uh, uh, email uh, Phil or I, and we could get you that information. Uh, Our guest today has been Paul Chaffee. Phil, any final words? No, I'm proud to be one of those 350 contributors uh, to the Interfaith Observer. It's an excellent publication, and I hope our listeners uh, go and uh, enjoy some of the uh, illuminating pieces there. Paul, well, Google Google the Interface Observer, comma Phil, uh, go for <laughs> it, and you'll come up with some really sensational. Well, that's exactly what I'm going to do when this is over. All right, thank you so very much, Paul. I look forward to having you back on sometime. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thanks, Appreciate Paul. the chance.